Dark web. Yeah. Dark web. Glitch. Dark web. Glitch. <laughs> Dark web. Glitch. Welcome to the Refactored Podcast, where our goal is to suck a little less each day at the intersection of technology and management. I am Chris Tonkinson. And I'm Frank Cole. And this is episode number three. How you doing, Frank? I'm good. How are you doing, buddy? I'm not doing too bad. Um, okay, that's good. I had a little technical difficulty here to start us off, but you know, we'll work through it. That's this what post is, this is the for. magic of digital technology. That's what post is for, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent you some articles uh over the weekend and then earlier today, um, I was going to talk about the first one, which I still think is really interesting. Um, and that was about ha- uh, shocker of shockers that computer code is not necessarily related to the language portions of the, of the brain or the math sections, which, again, can talk a lot about that. Doesn't surprise me in the slightest, but not a shock, not a shock at all. Uh, the other one, I think, is more interesting and probably a little more applicable. So we've got, uh, this was linked to me from a, from a coworker. Um, and I, I, first of all, the title. So, I mean, I've, I'm going to, I, I want to read through this and then we can just stop and comment because this is just great. So first and foremost, the title top lessons learned from working with a 10 X developer. As soon as I read 10 X, anything, my eyes roll into the back of my skull. It's- it's it's going to trigger everybody in a different way. <laughs> it's 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 ridiculous. Um I don't think that there is actually a thing as a 10x developer. Do you? Do you actually believe that this is a, a legit thing? Well, I don't want to get to what is the definition of is is on you, well, but I I think that it's <laughs> that there are different levels of I will say, generally speaking, I think the the way that it's used, I'm going to go ahead and say more myth than fact. Yeah, I think there's something to it, but I don't think, practically speaking, it means anything. And I, I can share more about what yeah, I yeah. think about that later. So right, so it, it's <laughs> I, I don't think it's a legit thing either. And given what this author talks about, and we'll link the article, but uh, what this author talks about, and uh, by the way. I actually think this is a great article. I think this is really, really good. I just have some commentary as, um, well, I mean, I would classify you according to this, according to these definitions, I would classify you as a 10X developer. I might classify myself as a 5X. I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if I should be insulted or, or complimented. <laughs> I'm trying to apply the proper level of false humility here for both of us is what I'm trying to do. And you're, you're making it difficult. <laughs> So, Epic fail. Yeah. So I actually think, no, seriously, I would put both of us, according to this author, I would put us in the in the 10X category. I mean, we've both been doing this for 20 years. You know, how many languages do you know? 10? Uh, a bunch. A bunch. I know I know less languages, but I've worked deeper in some of them than uh than others. So um I think that we've I think we've been here for a while. And um yeah, there's some interest. There's some interesting stuff here, so I'm just going to read some some of some of this this article. Uh, he sets it up talking about his experience working with the 10xers. So he starts nearly a decade ago. The director of software development at my employer at the time hired a software engineer three. We also hired a software engineer two. 
around the same time. Uh, first few months. Uh, oh, the the I'm sorry, the 10X his his code name is Gary. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about which is interesting because we both worked with a Gary who was actually quite quite technically sound too. Uh, more more I just say more talented on the keyboard than either of us. I see so good. Uh, all right, so that actually works. So uh, Gary was quiet and kept mostly kept to himself hard at work on a highly technical feature, a feature that everyone in the company had been pipe dreaming about for years but never took on due to multiple challenges. This guy was finally the one to do it. By the time he had the feature ready for QA, it looked better than I had imagined was more performant, was backed by thousands of unit test assertions. This in an aging flagship code base with complete lack of unit tests. Needless to say, all levels of management were pleased with the long-awaited feature. Now, here's the thing. Full stop right there. He already told me, I think, everything that we need to know about the situation that this 10Xer was working in because this (laughs) aging flagship code base, one, complete lack of unit tests, two, huge, like, Huge red flag. The fact that there was no code test. So the fact that this guy was doing tests alone is going to make him look outstanding when that's actually the what should be the baseline, despite the fact that a lot of companies still don't do it. So uh, I thought that jumps out at me. And then all levels of management being pleased, of course. I mean, yeah. But I mean, the lack of unit tests, huge red flag for me. That I don't want to go too much of a tangent here, but it was something that I, I wanted to bring up with you. Uh, I don't know that we've discussed this before. This 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 is uh, this is a double whammy as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. A- an aging flagship code base, which means it's already making money, which means it's in production, right? And no unit tests. It's funny these two things come <laughs> up here because I had a conversation recently with one of my senior staff and. Uh, we had this, I forget where the, uh, where the conversation came from, but the question basically came up, how do you, how do you define legacy? What is Mm. legacy? We all kind of know it when we see it, but what does that actually mean? Um, and I heard, I heard one, I think it was a, maybe a, uh, an article or another podcast we're talking and basically their, their assertion was what anything that's already in production, that's legacy. Um, hmm. and I didn't necessarily agree with that, but there was a hint of truth to it. I, right? don't, I definitely don't agree with that. My, my, uh, you know, my, my best efforts, because I'm, I'm half of an idiot. My best effort to come up with a definition was, no, I, I would say something without proper tests, right? Cause, and, mm. and, but still that was the best mm. I could come up with this, uh, this, this senior staffer I've got came up with this. He said, well, you know, really it's just anything that you're afraid to touch. And I thought that's that's it to me. It's good to me, and it's I want good. your opinion. That's good. My my opinion changed. I said yes. Legacy is anything I'm afraid to touch, and being in production is a proxy. Why am I afraid? You know, it's, I'm afraid to touch it because it's in production. I'm afraid to touch it because it doesn't have tests. I'm afraid to mm. touch it because this piece of code, you know, on the Git blame is is so old, it hasn't been touched in so long. All of those are proxies for I'm just afraid to do anything because I don't feel in control. Mm. Um, and I thought that was at that that day, this was uh, a couple of weeks ago, that day, my definition of legacy changed. If I'm afraid to touch it, it's legacy. Why are we afraid? That's our tallest nail right now. I want, I want your opinion. Okay. So that. yeah, I, I agree. So it's uh, fear to touch is good, but no, but yes and no. It, you're afraid to touch it, but because it's old. And why is it old? What the, what actually defines old? Because code that is functional and works well works well. You know, if it's if it ain't broke, you don't need to fix it. There's an age element that I think that definition is missing. Specifically, 
age with uh, in regards to currency? How is it up to date is, is I think, one of the, the major determining factors, because every legacy app, we just went through this for a for a customer that we're, we're working with and uh, put together a proposal and we're walking through their application and, you know, they've got this package and they installed it in 2015 and it end of life that same package because it's not up to date in 2018. And now it's, you know, two years past EOL. It hasn't gotten any support or anything like that. That part of it, I think, is, a, is, is crucial for, for legacy. Because if you, write a, if you write an application and, yeah, it has been in existence for 10 years or whatever, but you've kept it up to date. Like if you're using, I don't know, you and I have done a lot of Rails. I love Rails. Like if you have a Rails app and you started on Rails 1 and it's still around, but you're now running it on Rails 6. You've kept that up to date. That's not necessarily a legacy application if it's up to date, if it's stable. And then I, I do think, though, that your additional definitions about tests, I think that's important because tests are super important, period. And uh, fear to touch, though, here, here's the problem with fear to touch. What about a junior? What about a newbie on a, on a code base who hasn't had exposure to it? And it's a big system and it's in production. Well, they can be afraid to touch it simply because, holy crap, this is new stuff. I don't know it. I'm, well, I don't want to break it. Yeah, I don't know. We might we might dis, we might differ there a little bit because I think I think age is off. That's fine. Often You're welcome to be wrong. That's fine. You can be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but that's so gracious of you. I know there's there's, there's often here. and I think everybody would agree. There's often a very strong correlation between age and whether or not we consider it legacy. That's a that's a that's a correlation. But I've got stuff that I've seen, not my team, but but teams within my my current organization. No, 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 not your pushed code. out. No, 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 pushed out less than twelve months ago mm-hmm. that I now consider legacy. Mm. And then there's also stuff True. that's been in production for five years that I don't, I don't, I wouldn't even that let let word legacy would not even come to mind when thinking about the system. Okay, but now, is it current? Is it current? Though? When I say Right, it is right, but that's that's because we've got control, and so that's what that's when I when I say it's I'm afraid to touch it. So I think there's there's a little bit to unpack there. Number one, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't mean me like as a group, as mm-hmm. a team. Do we have hesitation about putting our fingers on that thing? Okay, fine, so fair. Little fair. Jimmy comes on to you know you got the greenhorn. Little Jimmy comes on, joins the team, and he writes. He's not. He's not touching it. Of course, he's afraid to touch it. Right. Am I, as the manager, afraid to have the code he wrote go and touch that production environment? Mm-hmm. Well, if I've got tests, if I've got a firm uh, CI and CD foundation, I've got code reviews, I've got documentation, I've got unit tests, I've got integration tests. If all of that's in place, I'm okay having little Jimmy's code go into production um, even if he might be terrified, right? And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he's he's little Jimmy, and this is a product that's already making money. And if it goes down, I lose money. He should be afraid to touch it. Okay. <laughs> right? No. Um, okay. Good point. That's a that's a fair counter. Because I, I, I when you say when you say age, I think okay, Linux kernel. That's not legacy. No, it's not. Right? Legacy. And it's ancient. That that's, actually that's some of the oldest open source software we supports, have. But that actually legacy. support you're supporting my case here. It, it is old and it's not legacy. Why? Because it has been kept up to date. It is current. It has been not because maintained. it's been kept up to date. It's because when changes are made, they're easy to validate for correctness and efficiency. Right. Because it has tests. It has it has people who review the code and it has automated systems to test 
changes. That's what makes so up to date or not up to date. I don't think that's it. I think, again, that's a correlation, just like age is a correlation mm-hmm. thing. Okay. I don't think that's actually the reason it becomes legacy. Hmm. Now, certainly, let me think about that a little bit, because certainly if I have something and it's not been updated, it's going to fall behind. It is almost assuredly legacy. It's almost it's guaranteed to be legacy, I would say, because then but you have that to go may be your your age. That may be a proxy for how up to date it is. Well, how, rather, how likely, and that may be completely orthogonal to my fear to touch. So it may be both. Like I think, well, I fear think it is touching both. it and how behind, how lagged behind. I mean, you know how much I like telling you that you know how much I like telling you that you're wrong. And that's unfortunately, I'm not able to do that completely in this case. I've got to give you some, some credit. I think it's both. I do think it's both. I think there's an age element to it. The fear to touch it can correspond to the age. It can also correspond to just how crappily it was written. You know, uh, we talked about the Linux kernel. Okay. Let's assume that the Linux kernel 1.0 is just as well-groomed and maintained as it is today, right? Mm-hmm. Let's assume that that was the case back then. Even if it was, how likely are you to touch Linux kernel 1.0? I'm not going to go near that with a 10-foot pole. I don't want to go anywhere near that thing <laughs> because it's so dang old. Yeah, I don't know. I think, <clears throat> again, if it's if it's got the infrastructure around it to make changes in a controlled way, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, our author here, he continues, and I think this is, it's relevant. Uh, shortly after this. Sorry. Guy, yeah. That was a, that was a huge tangent, but I saw a good uh, aging, aging flagship and lack of tests. That's like, that's oh. hitting oh, we're coming, all of the like, you know, we're coming back to it. Don't worry. We're coming back. So yeah. shortly after this feature success in this story, Gary held an engineering presentation. It was about architecture, namely around, I'm reading the article for anyone who's, uh, not picking up on my robotic voice here. And we'll, and we'll put it up in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, dependency, namely around object lifecycle, dependency inversion, ad hoc lifetimes versus explicitly scoped objects, the detriments of certain allocation anti-patterns, code coupling, and preventing unit test coverage, and how it's all connected to many of our internal engineering problems. So basically, this guy broke down the application and pointed out in very concrete technical terms these are bad practices and they have negative outcomes and and you know just laid it out there he 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 tore the application yeah. apart in a in a code review he did he basically it sounds like he did a code review the attendees who got it were nonplussed and quite possibly embarrassed because the critique wasn't all that flattering to those who had built the company's intellectual property since nearly the beginning uh, he continues our technical debt was typically bad but wasn't that bad Certainly not crippling to productivity, but there were large cringeworthy portions of our code feared by all that were obviously a result of the bad patterns Gary had revealed. Imagine opening your eyes to the fact that we were all part of the problem. Okay, so I'm going to pause here. He was doing a code review and this author, what is this author's name? Uh, Jeffrey. So Jeffrey and his colleagues, there's, there's nothing that they should be upset about. And you and I have talked about this. When when you review code, you especially your own code, you need to be merciless. You need to be lethally, nastily critical of your own stuff. You know, you cannot you, you can't have that emotional attachment to it. You have the idea, you pull it out of your head, you put it down on digital paper, you put you put it into code and you put it out there. And then you take a step back and you look at it and you evaluate it on its merits. It has nothing to do with you 
as a programmer, okay? One, you had the idea, you put it out there and you try and figure out how it works. And then you have to do reflection to figure out if it's good or not or where it's weak more than likely. Again, we try and suck a little bit less, by, which means by default, we suck. That is, that is the starting and ever-present default position. We always suck and we just want to suck less. And so doing this kind of code review, Gary was spot on. People getting butthurt about it, not good. And maybe Gary could have done a little bit of prep. Uh, one of the things that I like to do going into a code review, uh, make sure that you remind everyone, uh, avoid pronouns. It's not Gary's code. It's not Jeff's code. It's not Chris's code. It's not Frank's code. It's the code. And you keep people out of it completely. The code does this. The code does that. And, and you, you focus in on it as an object and you tear it apart that way. The other thing that's really important, too, is to remind everybody participating, especially the original authors, we are evaluating the code. We are not evaluating you as a human being or as a developer. You have to be able to, to mentally distance yourself from it. And if you do that, you get great reviews. You improve as a programmer. The software improves. Nobody has hurt feelings. I think that that was well, like you're like you're always missing. quick to remind people. You're always quick to remind people that you are not your ideas. You are not your ideas. That's true. So, and I, I, I still, I still say this because it's, it's, it's a great little quip. You know, you get all of the ideas out on the table. The bad ones naturally fall off the edges, and then we pick the best of what's left. It's I don't care who it came from. This is a round table. I don't care if you're CTO or if you're floor sweeper. Get all of the ideas out. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who had what. We'll sift through it. Um, but there is there is an element where the code review. I agree completely. It does necessarily need to be a dispassionate review. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you, but you cannot. I think there's you, you're giving Gary. I think more credit than than he might deserve here. It's not just simply a failure to um, to disclaim a few things at the beginning of the review and then avoid using pronouns during mm. the 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 best. If we're going to say, let's say the 10x developer exists, he's going to follow a typical. We're talking about uh, generalization. We're talking about an archetype here. So obviously. Uh, this does not apply in all situations, but if we're going to call the 10x developer a real thing, then they tend to be, I would, I would claim, uh, very melancholy type personality, very mm. detail oriented, very objective by nature. The problem is most other people are not that way. True. And I don't get into a whole like personality types thing here. No, there's a uh, part but, of that though. But those people who are who have that kind of a bent, they tend to be rather blunt. They tend to be what other people think rather unkind. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to say correct things, but their tone mm -hmm. imparts a message that rubs other people the wrong way. And they, and they and don't so, even know it, too. That's the thing. They don't, even, they don't even know. I They're said, being very productive. I, I, They're trying to be helpful. I, what I said was correct. I did not say anything false. No, you didn't, but your tone. No, but I didn't say anything incorrect. And there's, and it's just a personality. It's not, you know, it's it's not good or bad or indifferent. It's just how different people are wired. And so, I think while you're conducting the review, it's it's, I you I I, I tell uh I tell people this all the time. You know, people have to be coddled. You know, you don't walk into a room and call somebody's baby ugly. So that's, yep. I mean, and that's that's basically the 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 uh, deadly sin that this guy committed. He walked into a room. He called he called a baby ugly in front of its parents and 
importantly, grandparents, right? You got technical <laughs> leadership there who now right. may have a different opinion of that senior staff who wrote it all, all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe everybody in the company knows, hey, look, when we wrote this module, we knew it was crap. We swiped the, I always talk about technical debt as a literal charge card. I, I even do a, like a swiping motion with my hand. Mm-hmm. I said, we're going to swipe the, the technical debt charge card here. We know we're going to have to pay it back later. We all recognize this is suboptimal, that we're going to have to come back and, and pay interest on this later. So it could be that everybody in the room knew that the card had been swiped at that point. Uh, but now, again, uh, if he's, if, if what's his name, Gary, is not very careful with how he's presenting, how he's posturing, his tone, his, it's not just not using, you know, names, you know, let me bring up the get blame and see who touched this line last. Obviously that's a no, no. Um, right. But it's, 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 I think a little more than that. And I can see how everybody else would walk away with a sour opinion. Um, even if he added some disclaimers at the beginning, you, know, you gotta, you gotta be careful while you're doing it too. Well, I mean, it, you and I have talked a lot about how even engineers who are um, we talk about heads. I, I still do this to this day. I talk about heads down versus head up, heads up engineering, heads down engineering. That's your classic, you know, dark corner basement dweller. Give me a code problem. I'll go over here. I'll put my head down. I'll crank on it and then I'll hand you the thing. And then you give me the, the next thing. Heads up engineer. You've got your head up. You're not just looking down at your code. You are looking up at everything around the code. You're looking at the business implications and, and you know, the, the entire climate around it. And I mean, this is the, I mean, this is classic style heads down engineering and it, highlights the importance, the ever-presence importance. It doesn't matter what kind of programming or how removed you are from day-to-day or even how far removed you are from management. The importance of uh, EQ, you know, your emotional quotient, your 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 emotional intelligence and interpersonal skills. You 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 have to have them. You the the <laughs> the mistake that so many engineers make thinking that they can just be, you know, little little basement dwellers and don't have to deal with people. No, like you can't, I'm sorry. I, I wish you could, but that's yeah. Cue, cue the office space reference again. Cue the office space reference. Right. You, you just, you can't do that. You, you can't sit there asking for a week's meeting. Can I have my stapler? You, you can't, you, you can't do that. Well, so, and, that and, the, and the heads down, I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. The heads down. If I'm, if I'm adopting your terminology here on the fly, the heads down programmer, uh, this is where you get questions. Uh, like you know the the business unit, whatever that could be in your organization. Maybe it's mm-hmm. a uh, maybe it's a sales rep or client services manager, or it's uh, business development. It's it's uh, product manager. Whoever it you know whoever the you got the technical, you got the business. Whoever the business side is comes and says, well, um, you know, is this is this finished? This this work, this task, this objective is finished. Uh, maybe you say yes. They said, but is it done? Done. Right. Mm-hmm. So heads down developers mm-hmm. are, I think, largely responsible for the is it done? done oh, my gosh. That they're got. also <laughs> they're also responsible for it works on my machine. That's I mean, that's well, I mean, classic, that's, but that's no, that's classic. the same thing. You just, that's that's that is to say the same thing. Right. Having it be done is one thing. Yeah. I wrote the code and it looks right. No, is it done? Done means did you write the test? Did you write the documentation? Did you have a code review? Did you have a hallway review? Did somebody else look at it? All of these other things that you need to did it run through the pipeline? Did right. it go staging environment? Did you have all of those other things are around it? And that's I think to your point, a heads down developer will look at well, I wrote the code and I think that I wrote it correctly. 
heads up developer is going to make sure all those other things are in place before they call it done. Right. Um, but unfortunately, there's a percentage of the heads down and then everybody's asked, but is it done, done? I, I can't. I, I can't express how exhausted I am of hearing that question. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> excuse me. No, you're, you're right. Uh, we should draw a distinction though. What the, the Gary's problem here is not that kind of bottom dweller uh, problem because according no, to the we're, story, we're on a totally wrote, different, I don't totally know you'll ever are, get through this article at this pace. No, no, no. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. So, but, I mean, the point is there are, there are those crappy developers that just mm-hmm. do their thing and, you know, sit in the basement. There's, there's a couple of different levels of it. What you're describing is the is the weak or lazy programmer or the self absorbed programmer who actually he's he, this article has one of those in in play too. Uh, but going back to what you were talking about before with the um, not taking into account people's feelings and calling their baby ugly, uh, definitely this pro- this guy's problem because the article actually continued. The thing about this guy was that he was always right, not in the argumentative, always have to have the last word kind of way, but more like the guy knew everything about everything. I'm proud to have proven him once wrong once or twice in total, being a person who tries to get their facts straight before speaking. I'd feel embarrassed for various others in his path who didn't know something big that they probably should have known, given that their job titles are horizontal to Gary's position. So Gary didn't have any qualms when somebody who he was in a position of knowing something that he thought they should know of saying, what do you mean you don't know that? That's ridiculous that you don't. Uh, He even talks about further on here that uh, Gary got promoted. Gary got his own team. The author ended up underneath of him. He apparently got visibly outraged at management because the author of this article was only an SE1. And he thought Gary always thought that he was an SE2. And so he made a crap ton of noise and got the guy promoted. Um, So... (laughs) Again, it's that's like a it's a double edged sword kind of thing. I mean, having that having that passion and that fervency. Great. I mean, he he was able to get stuff done and, you know, his work spoke for him, spoke for itself. And that probably in Gary's experience got him. Uh, it was he was able to get away with being more brash because of just the sheer voluminous and quality output that he's able to do, which is great. I mean, you want to be able to do that, but I'm of the of the opinion that just because just because you earn karma points over here doesn't mean you have to spend them over here being a jackass in in some fashion. I feel like you should. I mean, I do it all the time. Don't don't even try it. I, I know where you're, I know where your head's going. You just stop right now. You, just because you have the points to spend doesn't mean you should. It means that you OK, you're great over here. will also be great over there. And that'll make it that makes your life even easier. Like if Gary was super passionate and was able to deliver things in a very uh, empathetic fashion, he'd be even more successful, one could argue. Well, if we're talking about professional team cultural karma, then the goal is not neutrality. Right. Right. So that's your point. Just because you've got some points over here doesn't mean you get to use them over there. So you should. No, you you would like to be karma positive if that's (laughs) That's the the verbiage where you just keep you just keep building that. You just keep building that bank. And And what that gives you what that gives you is uh, because we've talked before, there's the official org chart and then there's how things actually get done. What those karma points when you've got enough of them, what it gives you is sway 
over decisions that on paper, maybe you don't necessarily have say on. More karma points gives you more of those unofficial dotted lines on the org chart because there is Mm -hmm. the, you're right, there's the official org chart. Those are the solid lines. And then there's the, the, uh, the phantom or dark, (laughs) dark web org chart, which is the actual, yeah, dark web glitch. And it's the it's those other it's those unofficial connected dots that don't follow any necessarily any necessary hierarchy. I have seen I have seen people literally bridge entire separate divisions. And uh, this goes actually a client, uh, a very big client. They had a um, they had a, a, a team leader and she was three levels down and removed uh, in another department under another. C-suite executive, and she had a direct one-to-one line from her to the CTO or CIO. There were two of them, and I can't remember which was which. Um, She was under one of them, and she had a direct relation with the other, and the two of them collabed on all kinds of stuff for his department, for the other department, and it it was crazy. And part of the reason that she was able to do that was that she was a damn good worker, and she did really good work. And she was strong on her relationships and she was yeah. just, she was after it. And it's and not to get too computer sciencey, but I, my, my brain can't help it in this case. The, the official, the formal org chart, you know, formal meaning yeah, on formal. paper yeah. is necessarily a tree, right? The unofficial, the way things actually get done is more of like a weighted graph. Weighted and, graph. and you really, it doesn't really matter where you are. It's just how much gravity you have because people trust and respect you. And mm-hmm. that's really, and you, and you, and you, you're able to execute on things. You're able to get things done. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, all right. So I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. I do want to point out later in the story, he actually talks about how this guy, Gary actually left the company for personal reasons with no intention of working elsewhere. So he actually, you know, he reached that, that, stress point you know you you were you're talking about like it, you you can get it gets it can get frustrating and he just you know he wasn't able to to cope because of the probably lacking the the empathic nature and and being able to personally connect with these people and so he well, was when missing you can't, half the equation and w- because when you can't do that you know you brought up um uh, EQ, EQ, right? Yeah. Or, or having having the discipline to exercise situational awareness. Even if you don't have EQ, you can still do that, right? Just right. be situationally aware. Um, if you if you have none of that, or if you if you don't try to have any of that, you wind up with lots of dissonance that builds up in your head mm-hmm. because you literally, like you 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 in fact do not understand how things are happening because mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense according to the you know right. the the rules. Well, the, the the rules of engagement are are clearly yep. uh, clearly structured such that a you know b follows a and then that leads to this consequence and yep. but, but all of a sudden purple comes out of left field and you don't know what to do with it and if you, if you don't have that you just you don't even have the capacity to think about how those things happen and it's very easy to see how that would lead to burnout and somebody yeah. like that he he strikes me uh, as I read through this he struck me as as the ivory tower type of programmer so an ivory tower programmer for the listeners. Uh, is somebody who is steeped in the technical, uh, academic nuance of software development. They follow the patterns. They avoid the anti-patterns. They studiously pursue 100% uh, 
test code test coverage. It, all of the things that we talk about in an academic setting that while absolutely useful in the real world work environment, they're, they're, the real world tends to be a little more flexible than, than those. And so I feel like some of that might be Gary's problem here because if he really does feel that stress, then he's not fully comprehending what it is that management or what the business is actually trying to deal with. Yes, you can point out all of these problems and yes, they should be fixed. Okay, what do you want to sacrifice instead of that? Do you want to sacrifice that feature that our three-year whale client has been requesting for six months in order to go back and, and pay off this tech debt, which does have an impact, yes, but is minimal at best in terms of its of its overall uh, you know, splash damage to the company. You know, he he was lacking that that bit, and so ivory tower. You're way up high in this ivory tower, thinking about it, all this highfalutin academic technical stuff. The oxygen's kind of low up there, and and it, when your when your brain is oxygen starved, you, you you tend to your brain function tends to slow down. And you're, you you don't really have a good view. The other thing is you're way up high in the tower. You can't see what's happening on the ground, and so you got You can't be programming from the ivory tower. And I think that that was part of, uh, part of Gary's problem here and definitely contributing to his burnout. So, um, so there was that, uh, but anyway, we only come back to the author because the author talks about how working underneath this guy for two years was super informative to, to him. And that's great. Um, sounds like, uh, I know nothing about this author, uh, Jeffrey, I'm going to, I'm going to mangle his last name, Jeffrey Baker, Backer, B-A-K-K-E-R. I'm going to say Baker. So uh, it sounds like he was really useful to, to Jeffrey, which is, which is awesome. And he had some, uh, some key takeaways from this guy. And uh, I thought some of these were pretty good. I think he was drawing some, some of the same distinctions that you and I are talking about. He mentioned that, uh, you know, being a professional, being a professional versus being professional and, you know, choosing to be diplomatic. You know, he's, he's talking about the, the lack of, uh, of this guy's interpersonal skills. And so, you know, Jeffrey's right on. I think his instincts are good. Actually, to me, I mean, based on what he's finding here, uh, he, he's probably on track to surpass Gary because he'll be able to bring more emotional intelligence and, uh, and interpersonal skill to his, uh, to his game here. Um, so that was on the soft side. And then he had a list on the technical side. Uh, and I thought that th this list was, was interesting. And this is what I wanted to, to talk to you about. So he talks about strict adherence to solid capital, solid design principles. Is that an acronym that I'm not aware of? Is that a new one? Yeah, Ugh. that's, that's not, that's, that's not new. New, no, not new general, new to me. Cause the, I mean, there are so many of these things. I can't keep up with them. Um, uh, solid is basically solid means you want to write code that's uh, cohesive and decoupled. I, I forget what the full acronym, but uh, it's about defining, you know, interfaces and separating responsibility and, you know, doing, doing oop right. Uh, okay. If I'm, right. I hope, I hope that's not wrong. Cause otherwise I'll, I just looked like a jackass and I don't well, even know it yet. Well, apparently I didn't know it. And you said that this was an old acronym. So, I mean, we'll just look stupid together. Um, cool. <laughs> there's just, so, it's a big, it's a big ecosystem and I don't have time to sit in the ivory tower and learn every, every little nuance. So, um, 
So let's see here. Further separation. Okay, so this one jumped out at me. Further separation of concerns using the MVC pattern. Okay, pause. Further separation of concern from MVC pattern? What were you doing to separate your concerns without the MVC pattern? Let's assume he's not doing functional programming because if he's doing MVC, it's, 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 it's oop. Um, well, I think, I think if I'm reading, if I'm understanding this right, I don't think the author is saying like do MVC harder. I think he's saying, no, the MVC is a pattern that can help you further separate your concerns. You know, it, it furthers the pursuit of separate concerns you know, uh, uh, NBC does further. Hmm. Okay. See my read with, of this was different. My, my read of this was, okay, I've been trying to separate my concerns, but we haven't been using MVC and MVC. And then I got introduced to the, the wide, wondrous world of MVC. And now I can really separate my concerns. And so what were you doing before? Just, you know, just classes, just kind of floating out there all over the place. I mean, this is this is a story. This is a story from your. We don't know if this happened last year or 20 years ago. MVC uh, may have been with MVC as applied to I'm just going to take a leap of faith and say web development may have been assume. a more novel concept at that point. Uh, well, unfortunately, that's not going to. But it's not like it's not like it's not like, uh, you know, Rails and Django invented MVC, obviously. So this article is from October 30th of this year. And he talks about the two years that he spent under this person. It sounds like recent history, like very recent okay. history. So um, anyway, uh, point being, MVC, especially if you're doing web app stuff, is your, that's your starting point. If you're not doing MVC then as a starting point for an app, you are, I think, setting yourself up for a lot of pain. And again, we can <laughs> keep coming back to the ivory tower with this one. I, you know, we, you can. You you can wax poetic about you know different different design patterns, especially if you get to microservices. Well, but the list breakdown. is the list is him claiming that these things will help you. So, yes. in other words, I take this: if you're not doing any of these, you should try it. Yeah, and I would say MVC. If you're not doing it, you should you try should it. try it. Yeah, I would if say that's the spirit of what he's saying. Right. I just I mean maybe it's just my I don't know. This feels like um, this feels like baseline to me. If if you if you're doing if you're doing real software development, if you have nowhere to go to start, MVC is your is your first point because it is it is a very common, very logical separation of concerns to start with. You have yeah, you, I think and, you're I your think model, you're, you're, you're struggling you're struggling to agree that if you don't do it, you probably should check it out. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, let's see here. Command queries, responsibility segregation. And now I feel like we go in the exact opposite direction. Now we're now we're way onto the microservices side. Um, so have you dealt with any of that command query responsibility segregation in any of your stuff no. yet? No, I haven't dealt no. with it either. Um, I know what it is. The uh, It's the notion that you have a separation of, um, of commands from queries or uh, reads from writes. Ideally, you actually have a separate uh, object, separate class that does all destructive actions, read, writes, updates, or excuse me, uh, create, updates, and deletes. And you have a separate one for querying, for reading. And so you're keeping them fully functionally separate. And you start by just simply having them be separate objects. And then in the terms of a, of a microservices architecture, anywhere you have an actual API integration, you start with just the separate interfaces 
with an underpinning shared data model. And then you take it a step further and you separate the data models. And so you have this write-only data model and this read-only data model, um, which is, <laughs> like I said, MVC, it's your baseline for any monolith. Command query response, uh, CQRS is it's like on the complete opposite side. It's it's microservices to the nines. Like you're doing you're doing crazy heavy stuff on that. Um, definitely useful, and could absolutely make you a better developer. But it's also going to be situational. Like you're going to be dealing with microservices at that point. I so yes, he's right. But the dichotomy there really struck me about oh yeah, MVC that'll make you better. CQRS. Uh, yes, in the right situation, I, I, it, it, it just kind of, it, it, it made me cock my head a little bit. Um, obviously he was dealing with an application that had probably, it was legacy. So it had the MVC and it was moving to microservices architecture. Well, everything's, so everything's microservices. I got a battery sitting on my desk. That's probably got a couple of services. <laughs> that's under right. It. You got a microservice, all the things. That's another thing. There's a whole other topic we can talk about. This whole push for microservices. Total bunk, as far as I'm concerned. Not that it's not that oh, it's we're not gonna you, have to fight. Uh, we're gonna have to fight. We can right. fight next week. How's we're that? We'll fight next week. But it's not a date. that. It, uh, okay, I'm gonna uh, to be continued. To be continued. Uh, discovering the list continues. Discovering the fine details of the requirements using behavior-driven development, while also providing UI test automation. Okay, so he's talking about BDD. <laughs> And which I think is garbage. I'm going to take I, a stand on it. I think it's absolute garbage. Uh, and here's why those people that are best fit for that role don't actually exist for if they do not for long. Right. You need somebody with enough business context to know what things need to be tested. But somebody who's and I'm sorry, I've seen I've seen what they call what they call DSLs, and this is a whole separate yes. pet peeve of mine, what the Do Rubyists DSL, and others call DSLs, domain-specific language. Domain language. language. Boiler, uh, 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 it's not. It's not a DSL. I'm <laughs> a little bit of a language nerd myself. These are not DSLs. It's metaprogramming that you're putting lipstick on. That's all it is. It's, it's just metaprogramming. A DSL is something like awk. That's a DSL. Mm. Uh, you, you you don't you can't take C sharp right nor C sharp code on top of it, but just because it's abstract now, it's a, that's not a DSL. It's a pet peeve of mine. It's metaprogramming, <laughs> and that's not a dirty word. Metaprogramming no, not is not a dirty no, word, but let's no. call it what it is. Anyway, I, I digress. Let's just give them this. Uh, BDD defines the DSLs. I have looked at them. It's not like you can take somebody who can't code and and have them writing against these DSLs for BDD. Right. You, you have to have enough technical underpinning to write the test, but enough business knowledge to know what to test. Those people are not writing tests. Okay, so we, we, they we quickly go in other directions. <laughs> we need to, and we they need, make a lot more money doing it. <laughs> we need to pause for anyone who doesn't know what BDD is: behavior-driven development. Think test-driven development, where the test is written as an explicit human-readable statement describing what the application should do and so like the default account balance should be zero that would be and it, you would read the code it would say something like default account balance equals zero that's a that's that's how you would read it left to right like those words appear so on it reads the file so it reads as a sentence the rub is it reads as a sentence and then the computer the interpreter for whatever bdd you're using 
actually can read the sentence too and translate that into an actual test assumption. That's that's fundamentally what BDD is. And I, I agree. BDD is largely garbage because the notion is that you write BDD. Uh, the people who write the BDD are supposed to be the product people. They're supposed to be the feature people who are who are uh, frontline client side. This is what it needs to do. This is what I need in a feature. Yeah, the, and they're the supposed business to stakeholder, their business stakeholder, that, whoever that is. And they're supposed to write these tests. The thing is, they're still flipping code, like Chris was saying. And so you have to be a programmer or you have to learn the the technical programming nuance of the BDD in order to do that. Here's the other thing that uh, that I don't well, like. You have to, in order to make use of it, you can yeah. do. You, I can teach somebody who's non-technical to write very simple BDDs, mm-hmm. but they're not they're not going to be meaningful, right? right? In order to write anything that's that's really meaningful, actually or has provides meat any it. meaningful amount of coverage, you have to actually learn some programming fundamentals, right? Right. And you're taking somebody who already understands the business context and then trying to teach them development. Fun- it's just, it's not, those people are unicorns. They don't exist in real life. Well, and it's a, it's a waste. In my opinion, it is an absolute waste because you can now, get the, we go yeah, ahead. So you're right. You're right. It is, it is a waste, but I think, and, and if, if I can see where you're going with this, uh, he says, discovering the fine details of requirements using BDD while also providing UI test automation. In my mind, I think I've seen uh, over the last, I'll say 10 years, I have seen use in uh, two types of tests. Not to say that other tests are pointless. I'm not going to get into a whole thing here, but <laughs> unit tests yep. are very, very helpful. So yes. you're testing, for those that don't know, unit test, uh, you're taking the individual modules of your system, and then you're exercising each function within that module. So every function has a test that says, when I give it A, it spits out B. That's that's a unit test. It's isolated, and it's very low level. Um there's another kind of test, a UI test, an integration test, or, or more properly, an acceptance test mm-hmm. being broad about it, uh, which would be like a Selenium framework where you set, up a, you set up a running version of your website or your application, and then you're actually having some library go through and synthesize interactions with your end application. Right. Um, and then you get a full stack. You get end-to-end testing because in order to click on that button and get a response, it had to go, it had to exercise the code and the controller. Then it had to go get some data from a model. Then it had to process some by things. By contrast- End-to-end testing. So by contrast, that that acceptance test will exercise- very high co- level. Very high level. It will end up exercising code. That one acceptance test will exercise code that you might have hundreds or even thousands of individual unit tests for. So just right, to, but, just but to crucially, it. yeah, but but crucially, it tests the interaction, interaction between those correct. modules, right? Yeah, exactly. So exactly, and so I've seen in my personal, you know, I advocate unit tests, um, and I advocate advocate uh, acceptance tests. Mm-hmm. I think everything in between it can be helpful in, in uh, deployed in a limited, um, I should say, focused fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, the in between latitude tests, your integration tests. Um, and things like that, they they can be can helpful again tests. when they're focused and limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find the most bang for the buck unit test, and then some sort of system or or acceptance test. Those, in my opinion, in my experience, those give you the best bang for your buck as far as managing a product, 
getting it to, to market on time, keeping mm-hmm. your costs low, but also giving you reasonable assurance that what you're publishing doesn't suck or sucks right. a little less right, than, than it did last time. Right. Um, and so I think what he's saying here, while also providing UI test automation, almost as if that's a, oh, that's a, that's a, oh yeah, if you can give UI test automation, that's fine. No, that's, if we, if we substitute UI test automation for acceptance test here, I think that's the key. BDD is garbage. I'm doubling down. (laughs) I actually, I actually read that differently. What I actually read was that you, uh, BDD while also providing UI test automation, it's almost as if the UI test automation was somehow getting in the way of the BDD or vice versa. Right. It's it's an afterthought. Like if you can manage it, that's fine. But, but the fact that one of them doesn't naturally flow into the other. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're functionally two different tests and you can have two different layers of tests, BDD or yeah. TDD. And again, I, I mean, yeah. the closing point on the BDD, TDD thing, you, you don't need to write code to define and describe your feature requirements. You can have a Google doc. You can have a plain text file with bulleted lists in it of it must do this. It must do that. I have yet to see any BDD setup where the actual BDD things didn't end up in a JIRA ticket somewhere. Like it's just this, it's yeah. this convoluted over it, it, uh, this over expressiveness of, of the, no, of the it, feature requirements. Right. And, and to simplify my argument, it's really two things. Number one, uh, it's they're, they're both practical. Number one, it's hard to find people who a can do, can actually write the BDDs mm-hmm. uh, and are good at it and last any amount of time, right? It's, it's hard mm-hmm. to actually fill that role and then validate, uh, I'm sorry, and then defend that usage of, of time, right? To actually defend the time it takes to find somebody who can do it and to have mm-hmm. them actually do it. Uh, that's a lot of opportunity cost in my experience. So there's one practical concern. The other practical concern is that BDD does fit um, towards the top end, I'll say. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give them that. It's towards the, the higher end of test abstraction, but it's still in the middle. It's still between those low level unit and that highest level acceptance test. And I know the BDD advocates, the acolytes out there say, no, BDD, that is actually the acceptance test because it's written by the business. In no. practice, that's not true. In in practice, it doesn't happen that way. Um, and I would challenge anybody to point to a great example where that's that's not uh, the case. False. Look at false. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's totally. So uh, I, I'm on board with the UI test. Whatever your UI test is, if you can automate whatever your UI is, uh, pardon me, uh, if you're automating testing for that, those are then your your uh, your acceptance tests. I'm all on board. I, I love those. I love them to pieces. And here's the. OK, so last thing and then we'll finish this list. Um, your test coverage does not have to be and never will be 100%. You, uh, so, no. so code coverage, code coverage. Again, ROI. <laughs> you can do it. It's not worth it. Well, okay. So, so just a quick recap for anyone. Code coverage, if you've never heard that term, what that actually means is how much, what percentage of your code base is actually covered or run through your tests. And so, so if, if you, I have 100 lines of code and I run my automated tests and the software executes 70 of those 100 lines while it runs the whole test suite, I would get 70% test coverage. And it doesn't matter that one single line was run on every one of the tests. It just matters that it was hit at some point during your suite. It hit each. Um, To that point, I say 70 because for me, I find that's about the good ROI sweet spot. If I'm I'm at the keyboard, 
I'm not, I'm not at the keyboard a lot these days, but when I'm at the keyboard and I'm writing my tests for software, I find that naturally, if I'm doing some variant of TDD, mm-hmm. not super strict, but if I'm doing, you know, TDD ish, um, I will naturally come in around 60% coverage. Uh, it's a good exercise for me. I try to get that up to 70. Um, I feel like after that, again, after that, I just, it's, it's, it's a question of ROI. I'm not saying more isn't helpful. Um, but for me, that's, that's where the ROI curve kind of drops off. So what you what have to you? Do, right. Uh, well, so what you have to do at that point, once you've written the, the stuff, I, I like to use a, a code coverage utility and actually have it spit out my percentages, which files are light. And actually you can get them to tell you which, which lines were not oh, yeah, tested. The tooling, tooling the tooling's great. Telling yeah. me all those metrics. So, yeah. so what I do is, so I'll take that and I'll run the tool and then I'll have it tell me, okay, show me which lines are not being tested. Now, most of the time, for you, you may be wondering, uh, they don't count uh, commented lines or blank lines. Those aren't counted as testable lines. So it, it no, automatically actual ignores, logic. yeah, actual logic. Um, and so it'll tell you which lines. And then you just open up those files and you look at those lines. And then you just make a judgment call. Oh, this is really important. It should be tested. I missed an assertion somewhere. Let me go write it. Or conversely, oh, this is some additional language I, I am concatenating two strings here and it's it's kind of an edge casey thing uh whatever i don't i don't care if it, it you know that's i don't i'm not going to waste my time writing tests so the the actual here's the interesting thing and i'll find this link and, and put it into the to the notes um the author of extreme programming whose name is escaping me because i'm doing this on the spot also known as xp in if X- you're in the biz <laughs> So the author of XP, which is the grandfather of Agile and all this other stuff that came after it, he dropped randomly in a Stack Overflow post, somebody about about code coverage. He posted about how his job, it's, it's not my job to write tests. I write tests to achieve, quote, a certain level of confidence in my code, end quote tells you everything you need to know certain level of confidence you're not going to have 100 percent it and what that level of confidence is is going to vary based on what you're doing if you're building a basic monolithic website for a startup your confidence level is going to be a necessarily a lot lower than if you're building something for a space shuttle you're going to well but it's on it's but it's 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 at all layers of abstraction what what confidence means i can have an application Uh, you know, if I'm if I'm running a cat blog, then all right, yeah. you know, whatever percentage you you may you, you can arbitrate. If I if I'm uh, if I'm writing logic to govern a financial transaction what, within that module, I'm going to expect 100% coverage. I'm right. going to require right. that. So even a inside of a given quality there, yeah. And that's my mm-hmm. point. Even within a given module, the you module still, may be 100% yep. coverage, but the critical paths are fully tested. And so right. I just, I don't, okay. Well, the, the, you know, there's some edge case in the destructor. That's not, I don't, I don't care. I don't yeah. care. No, ex- exactly. Yeah. Or you've got some, you've got some piece of code. You've got to, at the end of the day, you have to clean ship up or something. You have yeah. to ship. Yeah, and that's exactly. where, and that's exactly. these models. Software is, software is a race to the bottom. It has been since it, since it existed, it has been a race to the bottom. That's why we get people asking, well, do we have time to write tests? Can we document? Oh, I didn't have time to write the documentation mm-hmm. for this. When I, when I'm, when I'm tasking my team with development effort, I, my standard operating procedure, when you, when I ask you, Hey, I need you to implement story one, two, three. 
go into Jira, find story one, two, three, give me an estimate, right? Your estimate should, and I'm not going to get into hours versus points, your estimate should include the effort to document and write tests. Baseline. Yeah, period. The, the business side comes back and says, hey, that's going to take too long. How do we get it faster? Not writing documentation and not writing tests is off the table as a response. They have to cut their scope. I'm not going to allow you to estimate and to sign your name onto something that doesn't have the documentation and tests and the other the other meta. If if there are CI or CD changes that need to happen to support that new code and new logic, whatever it is, that's included in the estimate. I mean, that's it not ha- negotiable. It, ha- it has. It has and to and be. so often I see development managers saying, "Oh yeah, implementation. It will cost. You know, uh, this is going to take me 500 hours." Uh, and then the answer comes back, "Okay, what about testing? Uh, let me think about it." No, no, no. <laughs> In that case, my estimate is 700 hours. And if you want to reduce that, we got to talk about scope. We're not going to, the documentation, the test, they're not extras that can be cut in, in my personal opinion. Well, I mean, so you're, you're, you're actually, there's a nugget there for for a key takeaway for people. So when you are doing estimating, do not itemize the tests and the documentation from writing the code. That's the key here, because what a lot of people will do is I need this number of hours to write the code. I need this number of hours to write the documentation. I need this number of hours to write the test. That's not Business how you do it. comes back and says, no, code only. They, exactly. You've already and lost. You, no, you have this already is what lost at that point. Yep. Yeah. Internally so, within the team, I want those numbers broken out. But then when we when I talk to my managers and they say, hey, here are the estimates. Here's the breakdowns. Here's the documentation effort. Here's the test effort. Here's the padding. You know, they added mm-hmm. uh, added 20% or whatever the number is because mm-hmm. everything is, it takes longer than you think. Uh, then when we send that to the business unit, now I'm abstracting that away and I'm saying, here's your bucket of time. This is what it takes. Non-negotiable. Yeah, that's you, not, that's, that is an internal operating uh, mechanic of my team. That's not up for some business unit to decide uh, we can cut this or that. Right. It's non-negotiable. And so you just, you keep that out of the conversation as much as possible. And then if it actually comes up, you talk about how uh, you 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 just minimize or diminish the the amount of effort that it takes because truly it really isn't that much time, and it really is super important to the overall stability and functionality. And so you should feel yeah. confident and comfortable holding that line. That yeah. no, now I mean yes, we're writing documentation. It's not going to take a lot of time. It's already baked in here. It's it's not a it's not a huge percentage. I mean, you just try and sidestep and move past that conversation. Most people. Unless they have a technical background, a, a deeply technical background, we'll just kind of you know move on past it. As long as you tell them that you know you're not writing a dissertation in terms of documentation, they're usually yeah. you can usually sidestep it. Different approaches for different audiences, but you can usually sidestep it. Okay, um, so two, three more bullets here. I feel like <laughs> I, I do want to give uh, I do want to give Jeffrey here some credit because I feel like we 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 smacked around. Poor Jeffrey on these first four, even though I wasn't trying to, you know, just good yeah. conversation. And I want to, I want to do him righteous. And I know we're, we got to alert the affiliates. We're running a little long here. So let's, we'll, we'll move through and, uh, well, and the give, last four. The, the, so he's got, he had four bullets here and, uh, or five, five, we've covered five. He's got three left and I, uh, they were all really good, but like the last three, I actually like mega props for, cause I, I heartily agree with him. So, um, let's see here. Very clearly defined and enforced definition of done. Hundred percent, yes. Yeah, Holy yep, crap! We covered that one. You hit the. I mean, yeah, hit the hit yeah. the jackpot on that one, Jeffrey. Um, you you got to know what's 
finished. You got to know what the feature actually has to do. This goes back to- Is it done done? This is very, this goes back to the stories that you write about and and BDD or otherwise, just what does it have to do? And having clear expectations of this is the thing and this is what it needs to do and goal. Um, Well, it's two things. Number one, it's, it's the story. Uh, but then it's also your policy because because your your policy is going to have things that you need to do for every story ever that aren't going to appear in the ticket. So like, to, was like it, and did it have the code review? Was it right. passed to, you know, if you have a dedicated QA function, was it passed to them? What did they have to say? Did you, you know, performance testing, security mm-hmm, testing, mm-hmm. St- whatever else it is that are in your in your PMPs for your your entire org, plus then uh and and make sure when you do reviews of these things, make sure that your templates, you know, if you if you use issue templates, you know, somebody clicks new ticket in your system, does it give them a prompt in terms of what you're looking for you from mean. them before yep. they file the ticket? Um, make sure that there's no gap between your your issue template and your policies, because mm-hmm. that gap, everything is gonna fall through that crack. Guaranteed. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's great. Absolutely 100% right on with that one. Next one, code quality and branching strategies to keep the source control system clean and performant. Yes, thank God, yes. You do not do work in a branch that A, other people are touching, or B, goes out to production. Full stop. You, you... And any Git. any any central, if you're on a team, you're probably using a Bitbucket, a GitLab, or yeah, what, you know whatever it is. Uh, you're gonna have the ability to to put restrictions on individual branches. So if if master right. changes to master, kick off a build that goes to prod. Nobody touches master, but for the you know release manager, if you have that role, or through a merge request from a you know that that's 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 there's there yeah, is automation that level. you can yep that's yeah. base foundation even. You, you can even put aside the the hard locks, which are very useful as you get bigger. They actually become absolutely necessary as you get bigger because they save you from, you know, your save you from poor Billy, who's trying to figure him figure, you know, figure his butt from a hole in the ground as he gets himself oriented inside your organization. You need to have that hard. You need to have those hard things in place to keep bad stuff from happening as a smaller organization. It's not as important, but the but the spirit of this rule Absolutely still applies. You work in a feature branch and you work there by yourself. And when you are ready, someone reviews it and then you merge it up. It keeps everything clear and it allows you to pull down changes as you're going. So you can keep yourself updated with with what others are doing as they push into master and vice versa. Um, and depending on whether or not you're doing user branches or feature branches, I would personally recommend feature branches. I think user branches present a, a lot of um, trouble. Um, if you're doing a feature branch, that means you f- you branch off of your main line every single time you're working on a new thing. I mean, thing to be determined by whatever it is that you're doing. And so you might have multiple feature branches going at once. When you're done, you merge it up and that branch is done. You cut it, you're you're out. And if you need to make changes again, new branch. And you just keep going that way. And that keeps everything very, very clean and very, very clear. And it avoids nasty, nastiness. Um, and then last but not least, uh, he says, embracing the true spirit of agility, italicized, underlined, without all of the process overhead that Scrum sells to you. Yes, totally. I find a lot of people get, especially on the client side, they get hung up on the, on the formalities and the, and the, um, 
the the, the I don't know the, the the fanciness of of the scrum or who's your scrum master and you know what you show me your agenda and you know where's your kanban board and 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 those kinds of things and each one of those things is a tool and they actually present actually each one of those processes has multiple tools lodged inside of it it it, it think of it as like grab bag what works if you need something grab it out of there use it yeah. do not get do not get religious about you know following strictly these different paradigms because you the the paradigms evolved out of actually very specific circumstances in some cases uh, kanban came out of toyota and building cars so you know it's, it's only going to be lightly applicable to you and your software development project and so you know, pick and choose and go for the things that are that are most useful to you and don't get hung up on whether or not you're following the letter of these things but 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 have but do that in a controlled way across your workflow so you're i don't i don't think the advice just to say oh grab whatever works well no you've got to grab whatever works given your particular context orchestrated along with all of the other stuff that you grabbed out of other bags and mm -hmm. make sure that that presents a unified um sdlc Mm -hmm. And make sure that it all works together for your organization. So Scrum, official Scrum TM, is not necessarily going to work for your org. Pieces of it might, as long as those mate well with the things around it. Mm -hmm. um, but once you do that, though, because you know we're talking about a team dynamic. This is not an individual development decision. This is a team decision. You've got to make sure that those pieces are then... Uh, orchestrated, and then you've got a document, you've got to level set the expectation with everybody. This is how we do things, and this is why. And we need to iterate on that. We can. We can pull more things out of the bag if we need to. And by the way, don't be afraid to put things back in the bag yes. if they're not working. Yes. Um, but it's it's got to be part of a cohesive strategy when you do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I got one more section here on this article, but I can nix it if you have a hard break. Um. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Uh, well, we just let's let's do let's do quick unless you don't think it's uh, done justice if we go through quick. No, no. I mean, we're we, we've covered we've actually covered it pretty well here. All right. Uh, let's see here. Other wrap ups you have. Uh, do you have an augment for us? A mental augment? Recommended reading or anything? No. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, let me. Um, you know what? I mean, we've got I, I this do, article. I, it's not a, this article. What's a, it's a, I, I, yeah, I have a pick uh, and the pick oh, is you I, have haven't, a pick. I haven't. I haven't bought, I haven't executed yet um, because I think for me, it's a terrible idea, but I think it's a really awesome idea uh, and, and it might do a good for a lot of people. Check out, I use, uh, I roll a DOS keyboard. I, I think, I believe you do as well still, mm -hmm. DOS keyboard. Um, uh, yes. I they have, have a new, I have actually changed, but we can, oh, okay. yeah, we can actually, okay. we'll talk about um, that later. So I have a, I have a DOS keyboard. I love it. I, love, it I do highly. love my DOS keyboard. Yeah. Oh, D-A-S, um, DOS keyboard, like German DOS, DOS like, keyboard. Sure, yep. Um, they have a new product. Well, I don't know how new it is. It's new to me. Uh, they have a Q line. Essentially, this is a programmable keyboard. At the, it's a full RGB, uh, full RGB keyboard. Um, and then there's they have an API. They have, they have a client app that runs in your OS, and you can propagate signals from your operating system to the keyboard to light up a key if you get a Slack notification or or make another key turn redder and brighter as your inbox grows. You can do all of these different things. Mm. You can program your, so your keyboard, in other words, the, the bullet point there is your keyboard becomes also an output and not just an input. Now for me, uh, it's, it's a curiosity. If I, if I get an extra 200, if I find $200 in my couch cushion, I may buy one and play with it. For me, 
I, I don't look at my keyboard ever. I was going to say, so you're, an extreme, not I was gonna, you're an extreme touch typist. You I'm, never I'm fairly proficient. Keys. Yeah, I'm fairly proficient. Fairly uh, proficient, says the guy who's divor- he's got Dvorak on his DOS keyboard. I did. And his I, keys, no, I did. His keys have no markings. There, It's a blank it's the, keyboard. This guy went the hard freaking core. <laughs> yeah, DOS keyboard, ultimate S, ultimate S silent, I think it has no, no markings on the keys. No markings, totally blank. Anyway. I'll tell you what, if you've, if you've, if you've learned and gotten, be, become a proficient typer with QWERTY, and then you switch to something Colmac or Dvorak or anything else and stick with it and do it, you can accomplish anything. That's a, <laughs> it's very painful. Um, but anyway, so I have, I don't look at my keyboard anyway, and I have, I have a pretty good ergonomic setup in my office where my monitor is actually like eye level. So it's, it's almost even out of my periphery most of the time. So it wouldn't really help me again. It's a really awesome idea for gaming. I could see, cause you, uh, yeah. you maybe you do look at your keys yep, a little more for gaming. Um, yep. It's tempting. I I have no use case for it, but I'm really tempted. So the the DOS keyboard Q uh, QX Q50X something like that. Mm -hmm. They have a couple of different versions. Um, Okay, that'll be my pick for the week. Even though I have no experience with it, there's your picks. Really cool thing that I found. Go ahead and augment yourself. Super augmented, silent, and deadly. I just might end up enjoying this. All right, man. (laughs) Uh, I will. I think that's it. Anything else for you? No, no. Cool. Good talk to you as always, brother. All right, man. I will see you next week. Later.